Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Rick Morton. All right. Welcome again to the Think Orphan podcast. I'm Rick Morton, your host, along with Phil Dark. Phil, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And and folks, I just want to kick off this show because this is the, the first recording we've had since since the national championship game. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about in our last uh, our last recording about how I was an Alabama fan for the weekend for the that one game and and how it was because I wanted you to be able to actually be, you know, joyful as you were in the uh, in the recording. Well, today we are proving that you can be joyful and you can be, you know, just sharing your wisdom, whether Alabama wins or loses. And so as difficult as that is, folks, it shows a lot about this man. So think what you will about Rick. You cannot, you know, think that he can't perform, you know, with just amazing sage wisdom, even after a, a game like that. So thank you, Rick. Man, I've, I've had plenty of time to get over it, um, you know, like since about halftime of the ball game. Uh, I've been been working on uh, on overcoming uh, the anxiety and the loss, and uh, I think I'm going to be okay. Um, pretty excited that uh, Clemson was able to go to the White House and meet with the president and uh, eat McDonald's with the yeah. president. So uh, yeah, it it uh, that you know I'm taking a little solace in the fact that they uh, that they got a happy meal for uh, for winning the national championship well you know folks you know sorry sorry for going there we're not a sports podcast <laughs> but it was more to talk about rick than it was to talk about the game as much as i'm sure we could talk for a long time about it all your you know the, the reasons why you know you feel they did they just struggled but we won't get into that today um, and the reason is we have a really really good interview with a ton of valuable information for you folks out there who are who are uh running organizations for you folks that are doing uh, anything in the context of the nonprofit NGO world around the world, we got a guy on today, uh, Rob Martin, who who has so much wisdom when it comes to uh, just organizational health, when it comes to fundraising, when it comes to all the things that we need to be doing to have healthy organizations. Rob talks about that in this interview. So, you know, even if you're not running an organization, even if you're not like working in the context of an NGO, this is something that will help you so much from a, from a donor perspective and, and from a, from someone who wants to maybe even volunteer with organizations to see and to, to, to hear and listen to what all that's about from, you know, from really a b- biblical perspective. So, um, Rob is the, is the, uh, director of the First Fruit Institute. First Fruit is a foundation. And uh, he, he really helps people um, by uh, consulting them on their fundraising uh, efforts um, in their nonprofit work. So, folks, you are in for a treat. I, I uh, encourage you to, to get your notebook out and, and take notes on this, on this interview. And I uh, look forward to hearing uh, back from you all as you engage the conversation and connect with us, whether it's via email, via the website, um, or comment on Facebook. So without more from us, we'll get to the interview with Rob Martin. Well, Rob, it is so great to have you here on the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks for having me. 
So, you know, Rob, you, you and I have gotten to know each other just a little bit before recording this, uh, this interview. And I, I look forward to having uh, our audience get to know you as well. So can you, before we get into kind of the, the meat of the interview, can you just share a little bit about your story and, and how you got to be where you are today? Huh. Well, uh, that is a, um, a confused I wouldn't call it a crooked path, but it, it definitely wasn't a designed path. I was, I was a confirmed, happy agnostic who found Christ at the age of 33, to my utter surprise. And, um, uh, and my life had felt like a traffic accident at that point. I said I was a happy agnostic, but other things in my life had, had unraveled. And I, I came to this, um, place of desperation and right in there, uh, met God through the, uh, uh, work of my stepbrother who had become, uh, caught up in the Jesus People revival of California back in the mid-70s. So in 76, Thanksgiving Eve, I gave my heart to the Lord. And over the next few months, he began cleaning up my act. And uh, I ended up in, um, uh, quite to my surprise, being called into the Christian work. I edited a, a Christian newspaper uh, that was kind of the journal of the Jesus People movement. Uh, we called it what was a contemporary Christian acts. And um, from that, um, uh, was volunteering at the local rescue mission uh, and um, was called into um, becoming the administrator there and, um, and began my work in missions at that point. Uh, a few years later, I uh, accepted a position as executive director of, or general manager was the title there, of the Fieldstead & Company, which was an unincorporated philanthropy of Howard Amundsen, Jr. Um, and then in 90, after a brief time with the U.S. Luzon Committee, I started work at First Fruit, where I continue to work. I've been there 28 years. Uh, the first 19 years as the first employee, I was the executive director uh, and then um, brought together a young team to take over from me when I uh, turned 65. And at that point, um, came to work for the First Fruit Institute, um, which I have been doing now for nine years. And can you just tell our audience a little bit about what the uh, First Fruit is doing around the world? Yeah, First Fruit is a uh, is a uh, evangelical philanthropy. Uh, it's the expression of a family that um, built homes in California, Utah, and Texas, and uh, chose to use a uh, a private foundation to be the expression of their giving. And um, the focus of the foundation was to help those that. Um, uh, serve uh, as evangelists, as um, uh, that do loving acts in the, the loving acts of the gospel, and train those leaders, uh, help them flourish in their work uh, among the bottom billions of the world. So, first fruits never worked in a, um, or rarely ever worked in a first world economy. 
So uh, we made our geographic determination of where we would work based on the economics Mm -hmm. and the assumption that in the lower economic strata of of, uh, life in the world, we could um, perhaps be part of the allocation of resources in, in under-allocated places. Yeah, and, and then the First Fruit Institute, you are currently director of. Part of that, you're, you provide FIFI fund, fundraising and organizational coaching to international right. ministry leaders. Can you tell us about that coaching and, and how people uh, listening could, could take advantage of that? Well, um, yeah, the coaching um, is... Um, Based on just a lifetime of pattern recognition, uh, I this is a completely unverifiable uh, fact, <laughs> Phil. But from 1983, when I started at Fieldstead and Company, to 2009, when I turned over the executive directorship of First Fruit. Now, both of those were evangelical philanthropies. I don't think there's a single human being on earth that read more evangelical missions proposals than me. <laughs> And I actually loved it mm-hmm. because I'm astonished by the variety of work that God calls people into to meet the pathologies of our globe, of, of this world we live in. And uh, and this, of course, is one of the most important and one of the most fundamental that you're working with. But we worked across a wide variety. So for me, reading the proposals was a way of seeing what God was up to. And, um, and early on, rather than just read them, I started flying around and going out to the furthest expression of what was being asked for in the proposals so that I could see for myself what was going on in, in the field. And so I've had a privilege of traveling into more than 70 countries and, um, and watching God's people at work uh, up close. And as a result of that, I've gotten some idea of the kinds of things that lead to organizational excellence and, uh, and the kind of communications necessary to, um, to explain what it is you're doing and get people to join you on the journey that you're on to whatever your purpose is. So, yeah, and is that at firstfruit.org people can go to the yeah. website and, and click on, I think it's what, one-on-one coaching or something along those lines on the website? Yeah, and, um, and you know, there's um, uh, unfortunately only one of me, <laughs> and, and that may not be adequate even for the poor folk that, uh, uh, that I work with, but uh, there's more work there. Sure. Uh, then we can attend to. So we, we can't respond to all of the requests. We do try. I, uh, my focus, though, is on uh, right now. I've got a book coming out in, um, in January in Moody called uh, uh, When Money Goes on Mission, Fundraising and Giving in the 21st Century. Mm. And in that book, the primary argument of that book is the is catching up to this wave of um, of uh, 
indigenous leadership and how they should be raising, uh, I actually call the term in the book autochronous, but the editor right now is thinking about pulling that term, but I liked it better <laughs> than indigenous, so we'll see. It's their book now, so I'll, I'll probably right. have to put up with her. Uh, her <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry about this for your broadcast, but uh, for... Um, uh, going forward, but the theme of the book is on local fundraising mm -hmm. to create this um, uh, to create a core strength in an organization, so that when it partners, it can partner in um, what I'm calling sustained interdependence. That is, uh, they're sustained in their core operation through local giving and a local board, and then interdependent for their program funds. Uh, from whatever sources would be appropriate for them uh, to raise. And so I'm tending to limit my coaching with American or international uh, folks uh, that are uh, willing to step out in this area of uh, local funding. And it, it really gets down to the heart of how an international mission organizes itself, its values, uh, how it can let go and help people graduate from within its uh, own structures. There's all kinds of challenges, but that's um, that's where my work is now. Yeah, and, and you, you kind of touched on a couple of things we're going to get into. One is organizational health, the other is fundraising, and we'll get into a little bit more detail uh, as, as we go on. But I want to focus on the organizational health right now. And sure. one of the things that I've noticed, and I don't know if you have as well, but too often nonprofits, and even there's a TED talk on this that I listened to again recently, but it talks about how nonprofits often, too often, accept less than excellence in their organization for various reasons. It could be resources, it could be just they don't have experience, whatever it may be. But you know, why do you think that is from what you've seen in those these many, many organizations that you've worked with or learned about? And how can we kind of shift the paradigm to one where Nonprofits expect and achieve organizational health and excellence as much as for-profit companies do. You know, I'm going to speak from my experience set, which is that is the um, uh, uh, Christian mission. Mm -hmm. And uh, because there's a difference of being called by Christ to work and, and going to work for a really good nonprofit that does not have that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, desire to see the gospel spread. So I'm, I'm, uh, I need to separate the two because when I talk about what's going on with excellence in the uh, Christian nonprofit world, uh, you start with the fact that most people, most people that come into Christian mission do not come from uh, a profession that prepared them for the job that they're going to do. Mm. That's uh, that's your experience, Phil. Mm -hmm. You were an attorney, yep. and, and then suddenly you're right. running an international orphan organization. Yep. Six months after you start, <laughs> I was a I was a Midland newspaper man with a. I mean, I was a newspaper man with a Midland career, and then suddenly I'm running a rescue mission. Right. I, oh, I had no idea about what was putting those people on the street, much less what it was needed to get them up out of, right. the, uh, out of the street, how to fundraise. I had never even given money away in my life. Right. I was, I was a, a, you know, an, a, a, yeah, well, an agnostic. Yeah. I thought right. atheism was as stupid as, as following <laughs> any religion. <laughs> so, 
and and uh, so and so I came into this thing, and and the book and my life, the coaching, everything. I'm never far away from that guy that didn't know what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you've got a lot of energy, uh, 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 a lot of passion, but not a lot of knowledge about how to go about your fundraising, and and so your mistakes tend to be epic. Uh, uh, well, uh, if you're like me, where you're, you're, you're kind of uh, charging ahead. <laughs> right. So, I mean, if I was more cautious, maybe my mistakes would have been <laughs> so epic. <laughs> but, but it was sort of like a Wiley Coyote, you know, you, you right. run off the edge of the cliff and then you notice that you're in thin air. You know? <laughs> and, and that is true for a lot of us. Yeah. That that come into this work. I mean, um, uh, quite often somebody may come out of the pastorate so that they've got at least a theological framework for what they're doing. And, and they and they've operated in a nonprofit environment, uh, you know, managing budgets and people and other things like that. And that tends to prepare you some. But what I've noticed now, because I've been teaching in seminaries and workshops and various things with mid-career leaders, all of whom, a lot of whom had a theological background, is their institutions didn't prepare them for management. Mm. They prepared them for impact. Mm-hmm. And a management was just sort of assumed. It's just been, you know, the first nonprofit cohorts, both secular and, and uh, sacred, ever, in uh, business schools or in, in seminaries or in graduate schools go back just to the 80s. Mm-hmm. So you, you've got a field that doesn't have a lot of professionalism. And that's not altogether a bad thing because professionalism can cover up. And this is why I make the distinction mm-hmm. between secular and sacred for this, argu- this argument. There are a lot of really good ideas out there. And, but not all of them are godly ideas. And uh, there's a little story that was told to me. It was like, um, it was told to me as if it were true. And I've come to believe that the story, if it isn't true, should be. Okay. And it's about a, a, a Korean, an old Korean pastor that sends his young apprentice to the United States to get an education. When he comes back, he asks him, well, so what did you learn? Uh, at seminary. And he says, well, it's amazing to me what Americans can do without the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> that's a rueful laugh. It's the, it's the same laugh that I have inside when I hear that, because we all know that we are an achieving nation. Mm-hmm. It's baked into who we are and how we think. And it's, it, it's baked into our arguments about how to achieve. And, and so we're constantly fixing things and placing ideas and doing big stuff. And we bring that same expression to our desire for uh, success in ministry so that if you pursue a good idea that isn't a godly idea, 
but ha- locks down all the things, seems to bring in the numbers. What if you're just one or two degrees off from center? And that one or two degrees came from the father of lies. Mm-hmm. So that you're taking an enormous amount of resources and energy and passion, and you're doing what looks like good stuff, but it's not very effective. And so I'm always looking for effectiveness over efficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and how to describe effectiveness is the challenge of, uh, commu- uh, of community. So that's, that's an, another one of the uh, ideas here is that we can bring good ideas into play that just aren't of God because quite often – any of uh, your listeners or you, I'm sure you've experienced this, I experience it all the time, is his answers are counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so what we have that is our foundational promise of how to get through life is that we were given the Holy Spirit at Pentecost um, to serve as a counselor to us to uh, be uh, to be that pl- uh, that wisdom giver and um, and so I spend a lot of my time um, talking to people about how do you know God's wisdom from uh, earth that's part of the efficiency effectiveness mm-hmm. uh, um, question uh, quite often, You'll see, uh, well, almost inevitably, and I've been puzzling over this one and I've been thinking about um, I'm uh, adding some writing about it because I'm just fascinated by the fact that just about everybody I know that's doing really good, effective, fruitful work, as best as I can tell, are underfunded. Mm -hmm. And so that raises a question in my mind. God's hand isn't short. He's got the cows on a thousand hills, right? Uh, We're doing his work, and yet we seem to not have enough money. And the answer could be organizational development issues. It could be lack of fundraising, and I'll get into that in in just a second. But I see it as, as not an endemic idea, but as a natural outgrowth of the passion of the people doing God's work. That is, when they get some money, they spend it on the field. Right. Not on their organization. Right. Not on their salaries. Not on the salaries of their people. Mm-hmm. That, so it's like the organizations are always on the thin nickel because where God has told them to work, it's nasty. Mm-hmm. And, and you're, you're penetrating darkness. With your work, so you put your assets into the penetration effort, whatever that thing is. And what I've noticed is the guys that are useless are the ones that have more money than they need and spend it on frivolous things like airplanes and fancy houses, mm-hmm. and and they preach a false gospel that God is a vending machine. You just make a claim and hit the right buttons and you get what your goodies are. And those people are prosperous. Right. They're prosperous all over the world. You can see their churches in the major cities around around the globe. And 
and I'm not, I haven't been to all the churches. I don't know all the fruit, but the ones I've been to, the fruit seems to be self-centered, selfish, and, and not as dynamic as the fruit of the, uh, the people not caught up in that particular heresy. And so, you know, Paul said to let everybody preach, whether they preach it for gain or not, somehow Jesus will be raised. So I, I take comfort in that. But I find that ministries that are underfunded are generally underfunded for very good reasons. Yeah. You know, I just want to add, you know, kind of go back a little bit, go back a couple, couple steps to you talk about in, I've, I've heard different talks, different things you've done in the past, different webinars and talking about the webinars. That was, yeah, that's what, that's what you were talking about earlier (laughs) webinars. Um, and the importance of knowing your mission, knowing your purpose and vision in the context of fundraising, but also in the context of just organization. I mean, I think that's That's right. At the the core of kind of organizational health, so you don't have mission shifts, so you're not just throwing darts out there. You right. actually are focused, and that's where most of the good work is done. But there are so many. I think there are so many organizations out there that are doing great work, but they get distracted because they don't have that core purpose, vision, focus. How can an organization do that if they're out there already doing it? Would you just say hit pause? And do it? Is it that important for them to understand that? Or would you say keep going? And I guess it just depends on the organization. But what would you say to someone who came to you and just said, you know, we feel like we're just doing too much and we aren't able to do what we're doing excellently? Most of the people that come to me wouldn't say that. What they'd say is we lack sufficient funds Mm -hmm. to operate more effectively and to uh, uh, be more, people won't, when the coaching starts, it usually starts at the place of most felt need, which is payroll. Right, yeah. And then we start unpacking the communications. So when we, when we can actually spend some time and talk about what it is you're up to, uh, and the fundraising need is real. The funds, uh, the funding need is real. The field is white to harvest. We know mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And um, and just about everything they're doing will have an active constituency. There's hardly a mission that has a program that doesn't have a constituency around that program. That is an right. employee, a board member, some donors. Uh, as some effective uh, impact in the field, all of which conspires against that that ministry being dropped in order to focus on core ministry. Right. So m- mission drift always has constituencies, hmm. and I think radical surgery is wrong because that's turnaround, mm-hmm. and it takes an in- an entirely different kind of leadership group to manage a turnaround yep. than it does to manage an S-curve change or a, a, a course correction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that takes more uh, long-term manager uh, management kind of thinking uh, it, it, to do course corrections r- rather because when you're, you're short-term, you're saving the jobs of as many people as you can. You're maybe looking at mergers. You're wondering whether you need to close down. 
you're begging supporters for a little cash to get you across whatever this challenge is. Generally, because you're breaking constituencies by breaking programs, uh, you're creating enemies. So that leadership team generally can't manage out of the turnaround. They can just manage the the turnaround mm-hmm. uh, because of the these constituencies that get um, uh, battered yeah. uh, through the process. So that's why I don't necessarily go for radical unless the situation calls for it, such as the death of a leader, right. um, it, something like that. Yeah. Or, or you may have a bad case of founder syndrome uh, where it's hard to let go uh, mm-hmm. for uh, for somebody that put in all the hard work of all those years. And, right. um, and so... I, I prefer uh, thoughtful uh, involvement with the board. Generally, I always start with the board. And uh, if you've got a fundraising problem, m- more than likely you've got communications issues, you've got some mission drift, you, uh, you may be lacking in expertise, you're, communi- uh, you're, um, uh, you're not paying enough attention to it, you may hate fundraising, uh, you know, it could be any number of right. reasons, but, uh, but you've got to go past all the stuff that they say and start asking them, uh, how are things going on your board? Because if there's any difference between the board and the executive director, any daylight there, uh, generally that creates a wiggle in the organization at the top, which become, which can become an earthquake yeah. out at the, and one of the indicators of the earthquake would be your funding is almost the first thing to feel the pressure of uh, inarticulate organizational structure. Right. And I think, you know, you've hit on several of the, the issues organizations have with fundraising. So let's start with the board. How would you, um, what would you say if, if, you know, hypothetically an organization comes to you and says, you know what, we just don't have a healthy board. We have very disengaged, very, um, they're not doing anything fundraising wise. Um, how yeah. would you encourage them to You talk about <laughs> well, course correction? It's hard to course for, correct on that yeah, one, right? For one thing, if an executive director came to me and started the conversation uh-huh. that way, uh-huh. I'd say uh, better be polishing your resume. Yeah. If you're if you're out calling people, telling people how lousy your board right, is. Right, 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 right. No, no, I, I have to do that through a discovery. You know, it's like um, a doctor that pokes you and says, does mm-hmm, it hurt? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and finally you poke somewhere and it yep. goes, oh, yeah, that yeah. one hurt. Yeah, they jump, yeah. And, you know, quite often the challenge with a board is – is not really uh, knowing what the board is supposed to do and what the executive director is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So um, I spend a lot of time uh, working with boards and executive directors, getting them on the same page. And primarily what that means is that um, we can take the time and we can substantiate these points with, with scripture. So I'm I'm going to make them and say these are actually sacred ideas, not mm-hmm. secular ideas that I'm trying to import into the sacred space, but that we can take from Paul's example of fundraising, uh, David's example of fundraising, Solomon's example of of fundraising. Um, you, you know, we've got a we've got a lot of the uh, of, of fundraising that was done. Yeah, 
in in scripture that we can uh, particularly uh, Paul's big, the big offering that Paul took up for the church in Jerusalem uh, from um, Greece, Greece and Macedonia, uh, in which he outlines in Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapters eight and nine, in which you can also follow the story in Acts, and, right. as well. So, um, bring me back to the question again. <laughs> yeah, you were you were talking about uh, the board and helping oh, yeah. them understand. Yeah, so the fundraising uh, uh, aspects. So, yeah, I I went off into that little caveat. So I don't think you're in an accountable situation if you can't be fired. Mm-hmm. So the first and foremost thing is that the executive serves at the pleasure of the board, but in return for the uh, the executive serving there, the board serves as a covering for the executive. So the exchange here is power for covering. Mm -hmm. And that covering is funding, uh, resources, connections, um, staying in their lane and and giving wisdom uh, into the circumstances. So they give uh, he gives power. She gives power. They get back covering. That is the board. Each board member is is funding. Uh, in fact, my my ideal is to see um, uh, to see a board member that their first place to give outside of their normal giving to their church is the mission they're serving on, and. Um, and in addition, they they need to have time commitment. They need to be of elder quality. That is, man or woman, somebody who has a, a lifetime of experience of following Christ and and discerning His voice and living the lifestyle out so that the fruit is evident, and then have arrived at some place of influence and affluence, or one or the other. And, and how do they give back to Christ? They serve on boards with the expertise, their business expertise, their pastoring expertise, whatever it is. And then they use the networks that they've developed through a lifetime of faithful service on behalf of the board. That's the covering. Right. The second part is the vision rests with the individual that leads the leadership team. Vision is expressed by that individual. That is, that's the person that's in touch with the reality of the organization. What's going on with the donors, what's going on with the staff, what's going on in the field, what's going on with the, uh, uh, the challenges that the field is playing. All of that comes together in the president and, is, and the president before God must shape that into vision and then bring that vision to this board. Then the board's role is to test the vision because it's healthy to be skeptical. Did you really hear from God? Is that really the direction we should go? Have you thought about, have you? And then in that back and forth, the vision gets tested and refined and a consensus is built. And then the executive is given the responsibility 
the board then creates policies around that vision, and then the executive is given the uh, the uh, job of fulfilling those policies, and then the board follows through, does development reviews and performance reviews on the place. I've worked with several boards now, um, and I'm not using hyperbole there, several boards now where they had not done development or performance reviews on, on their executive team and particularly their executive director. And seven, eight years, nine years later, the, the dysfunction is overwhelming mm-hmm. uh, because they're not on the same page. Right. And then a crisis happens and then you're in turnaround again and, and such like that. So that's, that's why I created this thing. At, if that's all working together, it, it's a spinning kind of orb that creates a pull of gravity, of goodwill, that actually draws people into the uh, orbit of the organization, into the universe of that organization, donors, staff, whatever it is. Right. And so that's why I start uh, there because, you know, fundraising itself, you can get, there is millions of pages that have been written on on fundraising now. So you can get all kinds of technique stuff uh, out there. Uh, But, you know, fundraising just has three basic tasks, discovery, acquisition, and nurture. And each one requires hard work and a, a specific set of tasks that you must do within the framework of that. And, um, and then you, you have to have an orderly progression with your donors, yeah. their givers. So can you, can you real quick, uh, you know, I think people kind of get the idea of what you're talking about, but can you real quick just summarize the discovery acquisition and nurture for the audience? Just to, I think that I understand what you're saying there, but I want to sure. make sure I'm not making assumptions that aren't totally correct on what you're, what you're talking about there. Well, Phil, I'll try to be real quick. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, even if it's a little longer than real quick, that's okay, because I think this is worth it, worth the time. Okay. Each task is distinct, but completely interrelated. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's a universe for the organization. When I ran, uh, when I was working at the Orange County Rescue Mission, our universe was Orange County, California. And, um, and so, that's where I needed to do the discovery of who was going to be. I needed to know who our potential donors are, were, where they were. That's the work of discovery. It's figuring out where they are, uh, figuring out uh, who they are and what they might uh, respond to, which leads into the second. But that's a lot of work all by itself. Yeah. And, and so I coach on that, of course. The, uh, you know, on how to know who your people are, how to talk to, uh, how to discover your universe and how to use whatever resources you currently have, because you've got some, you may not even know you have, right. uh, yet it's a little bit like, um, your theory of toolboxes. Mm-hmm. There's stuff in there that you may not know about that you have to open up the toolbox and take a look at. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes you need a little help with that, but uh, so that's the work of discovery and it's a, um, well, it's a lot of work. The second one is acquisition and that is 
how do you acquire from that the the universe that you've discovered in the individuals what is it that you present to them that acquires them as a donor or as a supporter of some sort or a volunteer or even a a um, staff member and such like that so how do you communicate what it is you do and uh, in such a way that it compels those who capture the vision who share your purpose or are looking for a purpose and find yours who share your purpose how do you acquire them as a giver and the um, and of course that's a lot of work. Yeah, right. <laughs> trying to get across the idea that it, all of it's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, and then the the last is nurture, and uh, each though you can't do any of them without the other, nurture is in one way the most important for the sustained health for the organization, because that's how do you help those that have been acquired as givers? They've made a first gift of some sort, large or small, how do you help them get to the fullness of their giving, whatever that is, whatever they choose that to be? It's not how do you trick them into more, how do you leverage them into more, how do you uh, uh, push them into more, how do you compel them into giving more? No, it's more about how do you help them see what further opportunities they might be able to partake in as they become an investor in your work and, um, and, and be satisfied with, you know, if they say, no, I just wanted to do this one gift, but if they are willing to give more gifts, how do you, how do you present those opportunities to them in an appropriate way? And, um, and then work them through so that they go from being an acquaintance when they're acquired to a friend. Right. That's a very powerful thing. A friend is someone that will read your materials. Mm -hmm. They'll un unpack, they'll go to your website, they'll uh, tell stories to their other friends, they'll pray for you, and they'll give you multiples of their first gift. They yeah. may, it may be a few or it may be multi uh, larger, or they may actually uh, increase uh, their giving. Uh, and then as, as some of them get more active and more involved and get closer to the work, you may, they may actually come and visit or take a look at the field in, in some way, but they may move to advocate. And at, at, at that advocate level, which is much easier today with social media, mm -hmm. uh, they, they can spread the message of what they're doing uh, of what they're participating in, what they're seeing to their friends. Um, and um, if they're, uh, if the time is worth it, that is the size of the gift might make it worth it. There may be some personal meetings and face-to-face -face work uh, for major donor or, uh, or uh, typical philanthropic work. Uh, but somewhere between friend and advocate is the strength of most missions. Yeah. At that point, the only thing they need to love and care about is your purpose. Mm -hmm. They don't really necessarily think much about the organization. Of course, they want it to be healthy and effective. Um, but their real focus, the reason they're in the game with you, the reason they're 
totally uh, toiling along with you is because of your purpose. But at this next level up, uh, which is the closest level to the board, uh, in an orbit, in a universe, if you were to see these as concentric circles, is wisdom. And that is a few people that you've gotten to know through the nurture process rise to the level where they actually start caring about the organization as uh, as well as the purpose of the organization. Only a few people need to be there. The I mean, the only real people that need to love the organization as much as they love the purpose of the organization are the people involved directly in the organization. Mm-hmm. Staff, leadership, board, and a few critical donors uh, that that they need two loves right. at that level, and um, and that's what happens in that. And that is, so that to me is what a healthy fundraising picture looks like with that board spinning uh, uh, structure there. So, yeah, no, that's that is. Fantastic. What, what what do you think as far as you know? I mean, a mid-sized organization has a executive director, a board, um, doing a good amount of work. We kept the one common theme about that answer you just said is fundraising is a lot of work. Um, yeah. Do you think? Uh, I mean, obviously it's possible, but do you think it's advisable to not have someone doing fundraising on either a, a close to full-time basis or full-time basis in an organization to really be able to do the fundraising side well? Well, uh, first and foremost is the time management of the executive. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quite a few executives uh, struggle with fundraising because of time management issues. Uh, But really, most of them struggle with it because they prefer not to do it. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, quite a few. Let me, let me say some actually love to do fundraising, but really quite a few, uh, have conflicts with it that they need to work through. Like, is it unbiblical? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, is it, 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 you know, some people feel like fundraising is a necessary evil to do the good. Yeah that they want to do because they're focused on the transactional nature of fundraising, which you can't get away from. It is a transaction at one very primary level, but it's a positive transaction with, with an exchange of money for the essence of what that money is going to do. That's what the donor cares about is the essence. And you have to focus on the essence in order to get past the transaction because the transaction is just part of it. And and there's fear in money. Look, you can go weak-kneed in front of a donor. If you have to make payroll, which we did at the rescue mission, and we were struggling, we were really struggling mm-hmm. because I, one, didn't know what I was doing uh, at, at the time. But we were also struggling just because our issue was just one of a thousand that people, you know, there's a lot of noise out there. And so right. how do you break through the noise and get people to focus on you for a while? But, um, well, I don't know. I, th- I feel like I'm. Yeah, no, I think that, that I, I think it's something that you, you hit there. Um, I think in some organizations, yeah, they, maybe they are so big that the executive director is not able to do everything. 
um, with excellence. Well, but like you said, I think they, they a lot of it isn't that. Real, they have to give real time yeah. uh, uh, to funding. Uh, that's why I'm saying it's a lot of work. Yeah. But by that, it's not it's not impossible work. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's just work. Yeah. It, which requires time sure. and consideration and prayer and thoughtfulness and just all sorts of things. But it's a, really it's a pastoring function mm-hmm. uh, because people are coming. You're inviting them on the journey with right. you. Right. And all you're doing is making an offer to them to participate. You're mm-hmm. not begging money. Uh, people feel fundraising is begging. I've taught seminars on fundraising right. a lot. And I often begin somewhere with the question, Do you, uh, who hates fundraising or what do you guys think? And uh, you get that. Mm-hmm. I used to have people come into my office. Can you imagine? They go into a ph- philanthropist's office. I was a program officer, won my money. Uh, I was just the gatekeeper, right? right. But they come in, and in order to bring down their own um, perhaps anxiety over the situation, they they would begin by saying something like, uh, "You know, I I really hate fundraising." <laughs> I actually had people say that to mm-hmm. me in my office, and uh, I'll tell you what my the thought that was in my mind when they would say that I would think I wouldn't say it. But I would think, thanks for coming in and swimming in the sewer with me. Mm-hmm. You know, watch out for the little brown floaty things. <laughs> you know, it was like, what are you saying? That this is filthy business? Right. This is, we're dedicating our lives to funding mission. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, hey, we're not out in the, uh, you know, out in the uh, far reaches of the kingdom. We're just helping the organizations that are out there flourish in how they come about their work, either by right. giving them grants or a little bit of coaching or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a little counsel and hope. But um, it's it's um, it's still a calling. Yeah, absolutely. And it needs to be valued for that. And so people have to get over this fear of fundraising. And then, um, and then learn how to navigate so that money doesn't become their god. Yeah, absolutely. I talk to people a lot of times about fundraising when they're when they're very uh, hesitant to ever ask for people for something. And I, I ask them a couple of questions. The first one I ask is, "Do you do you believe the work that we're doing is, or that you're doing, is God's work?" Um, and if they answer yes, and I said, "Then you should have no problem asking anyone for anything for it." Um, and I also talk to them about the fact that they might be robbing someone that someone of the opportunity to be part of something that they're supposed to be doing for the kingdom. If they don't offer them the opportunity to help through funding or other, some other way, would you agree with those things in the, in the context of what you're saying? Yes, of course. Yeah. The, um, uh, for me, I was a, like I said, a agnostic. I had not really, I can't remember in the first 33 years of my life giving money to anything other than I'm old enough that we used to have these little March of Dimes 
packets that you'd put dimes in for yeah. to, to end polio. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe maybe I participated in that because <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it was competitive. Who yeah, was going to oh, get all the dimes? Right. In? Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> and then you got something like a ball or something. Sure. You know? Sure. <laughs> but um, when I became a believer, I I was dead broke and in debt. And, um, and a few months later I got, uh, the first real money, uh, that I'd had in a, a few months in a, uh, from a small job that I'd taken. And when I cashed the check, this idea came into my mind that I should give a tithe. Now I, I hadn't necessarily been taught it yet, but mm-hmm. I was coming, I, I was going to a lot of Bible studies and heard at least six months of sermons and I hadn't heard money talked about, but I, I did just know I was supposed to give some of it, and that ushered in a slithering, selfish mood that said, why would I give anything away? And, and that scared me, and I took a long walk uh, on the streets of Santa Ana in Orange County around the rescue mission where I was volunteering at the time, trying to figure out why I was struggling giving this money away, and I finally realized it was because I was struggling with my belief in God. If he was real, that was one thing. If he wasn't real, why would I give money? Mm-hmm. I mean, I could understand the need to keep the lights on at church and pay the pastor, but beyond that, I why would I give money to this thing that wasn't real? And then I realized, but no, this is real. In fact, right. it's the biggest reality of my life. Yeah, and And then... That just answered it for me, and I joyfully gave some money uh, that day, mm-hmm. and and frankly, it feels like that's the day I became a true disciple of Christ. Not buying my way into heaven, but releasing my control, and and beginning to experience the fullness of His life and the joy uh, of giving. Right. And when you won't do fundraising because of any number of stupid reasons, you're denying perhaps somebody that needs to be in in with you in this. Maybe mm-hmm. it's a discipling issue for them, like mm-hmm. it was for me. Uh, but if joy and 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 giving without compulsion is part of this expression, it's a it's as critical as any other thing you're doing, including the loving actions of the gospel, your mission is accomplishing. Right. And so that you got to getting that across to people uh, helps overcome this first felt need for funds. And then you can go and look at organizational development and communications and and other things. There's all kinds of other reasons people uh, or feel challenged with fundraising. One is, is if they given the privilege of preaching in a church, they think they need to reach everybody. Hmm. Instead, what they need to do is preach a sermon that blesses that church and see who out of the 200 people sitting there, God might be bringing to their issue. Right. It may only be three or four or five people. But it's those are the five people you were designated to speak to. Right. Because the other 195 people, 
God is speaking to them as well, but maybe it's for a whole different set of issues, not orphans, but uh, perhaps the homeless or mm-hmm. uh, evangelization of some unreached people or refugee work, uh, whatever. Uh, it's God cares about all these needs and he calls people. So all when you make your fundraising presentations, all you're looking for are those that are prepared either to hear your vision and connect to it because they've got a similar vision right. or develop a vision that they didn't have before mm-hmm. and connect with you. And that that's really the essence of it. And that's why it's a pastoring function, because you're creating literally a congregation around this issue yeah, and around this idea. And you're moving towards a destination, which is your purpose. So then we get into communications. How do we communicate uh, purpose and such? And then, of course, we're going to look at the uh, excellence uh, versus faith divide as well. Yeah. It's artificial. Right. And we could talk for hours about the, all of those things. Unfortunately, we've, uh, we're nearing the hour mark right now. So I, I will ask the last couple of questions I ask everyone, and these will likely go a lot quicker. But uh, the first is, what have you read, listened to, or watched recently that has impacted your thinking on how we can better love orphaned and at-risk children with excellence? That is... Um a good question, and it was really reading in Hebrews, going and and doing a real in-depth meditation on the uh, admonition of pure religion is looking after the orphan and the widow, and really sitting and talking with my colleague Steve Young about what what that actually means as it plays out in the work that you're doing and your colleagues are doing around the world, and. Uh, really for the first time focusing on this challenge that you have for bringing family-based care as into the norm of, uh, of orphan relief. Uh, so really for me, it started right there in scripture. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, and that's a great place to start and a great place to end too. I mean, that, that's uh, <laughs> that's a place that we, we go and, and hopefully it's the, the main source for us. Um, but what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and vulnerable children with excellence? Well, again, that was Steve Young, my colleague here mm-hmm. at First Fruit, who uh, has a special uh, – he's our special project director. And so a, a, a portion of First Fruit's uh, efforts now are focused in this space of family-based care. And so in, in following Steve's work, um, I'm learning more about it. I've also been around philanthropy for a long time. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that struck me was in the 80s, we never, early 80s, we never saw proposals for orphanages in Africa. We saw them in Asia and uh, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, um, well, not Eastern Europe or China at the time because they were behind somewhat closed doors. But um, then in by the late 80s, we started getting all these requests for funds for orphanages uh, by pastors, mission agencies. It just was became overwhelming. And it was, of course, the, the uh, uh, 
the endemic uh, aspect of uh, AIDS just devastating the extended families, uh, African families, which for centuries had always raised orphans as their own Mm -hmm. in their homes, whether it was an aunt, a cousin, or the next door neighbor. And and when uh, to see the destruction that AIDS brought in the African setting to that beautiful family structure of African families, and and then suddenly these children cast out with no place to go, a grandmother that can't even help them, and then the the institution of orphanages. I mean, just about every church I ever heard of started, you know, particularly in the rural or. Um, uh, uh, the um, uh, challenging economic neighborhoods, they, uh, you, you just started seeing orphanages spring up all over the place, people putting up kids. Mm-hmm. And, and then to fast forward to today and the work that you're doing and that uh, Steve is paying attention to and the rest are doing, to see how you are searching for a tipping point where family-based care becomes the norm for orphans. Mm-hmm. And um, that to me is a fascinating challenge and um, I'm happy to be watching it more closely now. I'm, I, I have become the converted. <laughs> well, that's good. We yeah. need more of you. Um, and I uh, definitely appreciate uh, the work you guys are doing, the, the partnership that you guys have, the thinking that Steve is doing, think, the help that you're giving to organizations to really be able to, to see fundraising as what it is, which is, is a extension of, you know, the kingdom and how God can, can fund the things that he loves and that he cares for and how we can be a part of that. So yeah. thank you so much for, for what you're doing. Thank you for your time today. And I look you forward bet. to continuing this conversation real soon. All right. Thank you, Phil. Well, thanks again, Rob, for sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, Rick, what, what'd you think of Rob? Man, um, what a, what an incredible wealth of wisdom and experience. Uh, it was great to great to hear hear Rob talk about just kind of a a, um, a real world perspective about uh, fundraising and leadership and the things that we face in um, nonprofit uh, ministry all the time. Um, I I think it was it was refreshing to um, to hear him talk about in the context of Christian nonprofits, the, the role of the Holy Spirit in guiding uh, our actions and and really to hear him talk about not just in in purely business terms, but in, uh, you know, in terms of God's initiative and and the work of the Spirit, really discerning the purpose and the direction of a ministry um, and, and that being part of part of what he coaches on. Uh, and and part of what honestly he sees lacking in a lot of uh, a lot of American institutions. Yeah, you know that's something that really stuck out to me. I you know I write down a few quotes that that stick with me. And you know he said it's amazing what people can do without the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know, like as that's not a good thing, right? Like in the it was more of a a tongue in cheek. Like look, you know you're trying to do a lot of stuff on your own power, and it's just not gonna it's not gonna get there. It's not going to get there. As he's, you know, he also said later, I'm looking, always looking for effectiveness over efficiency. And, you know, that's something that we all, we often talk about efficiency and we'd love to have both. Right. But it's, you know, it's, it's like, we always say we want to have quality over quantity. Um, and that's something you and I, you know, talk a lot about when it comes to the context of orphan care and the qualitative analysis is something that we talk about that about that one child. How can we love these children? 
um, in their individuality as opposed to just a bunch of numbers and a bunch of, you know, it's not what's your cost per kid. It's, you know, how are we impacting the lives of the children that we're loving, right? So um, I loved how he kind of put that flavor into the into the conversation because he's not just dealing with orphan care organizations, but he's dealing with all kinds of organizations. So to hear him say that was, was so refreshing to hear because oftentimes when fundraising experts and gurus, you don't hear a lot of that conversation um, when you're talking with them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think there was a, a real truism that he threw out as well about, um, you know, he talked about effective ministries lacking resources um, and and that being a direct result many times of, you know, just really true missional zeal that uh, that, you know, many times we look and we say, why are why are the ministries that we that we love the most? Why are why are the ones that are uh, you know, that are seemingly the most effective, always a little bit short on resources. And and why do those who we, you know, question their direction, question their theology, uh, why, why are they many times well-resourced to accomplish a vision that we question whether, whether it's actually worth, uh, you know, pursuing or not? And, and it was it was really interesting to, you know, just kind of hear him break that down a little bit to say that the reason is because those ministries um, really prioritize pushing money to the work. And and the fact is that we always do walk a fine balance about reinvesting in ministry and about about spending well in order to sustain our ministries, uh, while at the same time trying to maximize and see as much money go to the field and and go to you know to the work that we've been called to as possible. And and that 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 is that is constantly a question that uh, that you and I and and many others that are uh, you know that are in this work find ourselves asking all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we talk about that all the time in the work that we're doing. It's, it's, it's that very, that struggle, that very struggle that, you know, people are like, well, you need to save a bunch of money. And, you know, the problem is there's always more great work to do. And there's always more things that we have on our, you know, in our vision of the ministry that we're doing. And so, you know, I know that in the past probably five, six years, both of our ministries, both Lifeline, Providence have, have had moments of, man, we, we're going to have a lot of cuts this year. Cause we just don't have the funds and then, you know, through it, it's just praying and saying, God just provide or else we're not going to be able to do this. And he does, it, you know, in the ways that, you know, it's not a prosperity thing. It's a look, you know, if we're doing the work of God, he's going to provide every need that we have. Um, or it's not yeah, need, for sure. Right. You know? No, yeah, absolutely. You know, so. and, and I think, I think he talked about, you know, when he, when he got into talking about that, you know, every, that with, when it comes to mission drift, that every, you know, every drift uh, it always has a constituency and and just realizing how important it is that part of part of our job and leadership in in leading ministry is pointing people consistently back to the mission so that we remember what the main thing is and and we're you know we keep ourselves focused because because the fact is every time we allow uh, ministry to drift uh, we allow our focus to get loose uh, we end up collecting followers we end up collecting donors we end up collecting people around us that that want to reinforce that thing that we have drifted into um, and if that thing is you know not of God if it's not directly aligned to the mission that we've been given um, then that that spells trouble and and there's going to be pain in uh, you know in the realignment of that yeah, definitely. You know, that's something that, uh, you know, we are, we are continually, continually protecting the mission, protecting the vision because there's so many opportunities, 
Um, particularly in this work, you know, you have so many different lives, so many different potential things you could be doing in the context of this work. And that's where it's, it's important to both have a firm understanding of what your mission is and what your vision is and understand the power of collaboration, which we talk about all the time on this show, right? The idea that, you know, if we have partners, ministry partners, if we have people who we trust and that we know will do work amazingly and they are doing work in great ways, then it's so much easier to pass on work that we don't otherwise try to take on everything that comes our way. We can say, no, you know what? There's this other great organization, even if that means that a lot of money is going to go to that other organization, especially sometimes because money is going to go to that other organization because we know they're doing great work too. And we want to make sure that that bet, that money is going to the best use it possibly can go to. So, you know, that when we're doing this right, we look at it like these are kingdom resources and we want them to be used as effectively as possible. If somebody else does it better than us, then they should be doing the work. Absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, that also creates um, credibility with donors. And w- when people see that, you know, that you're willing to, um, you know, to honor their stewardship in, in the fact that you would point them to someone else as opposed to trying to devise a way to do it yourself or to, you know, to hold their hold their contribution to you. But but you're willing to you're willing to give a, give them away <laughs> to point them to someone who's, you know, who's doing it better or doing it more effectively or 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 running in a completely different you know lane than you are. That uh, that smacks of integrity. Um, you know, and I, and I can tell you, we can point back to stories at, at Lifeline where we've had, um, you know, we built solid relationships with people that are great friends of Lifeline and, and, and people that are deeply invested in our ministry now because, because we had enough integrity to tell them when they told us the passion of their heart, um, that's not what we do. But we have friends that do that, and we'd love to introduce you. Um, and and it, it really, you know, it, it honestly, the the sad thing is that 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 sometimes in the nonprofit space is rare. Um, but we have to remind ourselves that you know, the, just like the old, you know, the professor used to say in business school, when we stick to our knitting, you know, when we stick to those things that we've been called to, um, and and we and we live in an open handed way that uh, that God's going to honor that, and people are going to respect it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one one last thing before uh, heading to the recommendations today. You know, the the one of the last things he talked about was just the idea of fundraising and it, the idea of what the Bible talks about when it comes to fundraising. The idea of all you're doing is making an offer to these people to participate in the kingdom work, right? Have you? When was it that you? And I know you understand that, and I know that yeah. you have shifted your thinking, you know, over the years at some point to that, or maybe it always was that. But you know, so many people say I hate fundraising, you know, and it's usually because you don't want to ask people for money, right? But when you look yeah. at it as an offer for them to participate, and you're giving them an opportunity to be part of some kingdom work, when did that kind of click in your mind? You know, um, I, I think it, I mean, I think I understood it in principle, uh, probably before this, but it was, uh, you know, about five years ago when I came to Lifeline and, and really, you know, began to do fundraising as a part of, uh, part of the ministry that, you know, that God had given me and, uh, and, and honestly, you know, really walked into that, uh, being a little bit uneasy about, um, you know, just what is this thing kind of feeling a little bit like he, you know, a little bit like he confessed, uh, you know, that he'd been told at, you know, at times that there was something a little bit unseemly about it. But, uh, 
honestly, man, just took a deep dive into the scriptures and, and, and really looked and reflected and, and, you know, built upon the idea that, that God is going to resource and he's going to provide for the work, um, that he's appointed to be done. And, and that the way that God provides is through the people that steward over those resources, that God trusts those resources into the hands of people. And, and part of our job, if, if our job is mobilization, if part of our job in discipleship is, is helping people to live on mission, that means living on mission, not just with their, with their body or their mind or their soul, but it's also living on mission with their stuff. Um, you know, living on mission with the things that they've been given to to govern over and steward over, and uh, and and that really all we're doing is we're telling great stories, and we're we're giving people an opportunity to understand things that are happening around them and opportunities, and then really just trusting God to impress upon them the things that um, you know that are that are His plan and a reflection of His heart for them. Yeah, you know, this is something that that. When I talk to people about fundraising, like, how do you keep doing it? I go, honestly, there, there are times where I get frustrated with it. There are times where I, you know, there are some friendships that have suffered because of what I do. And that's hard, you know, and that's frustrating. And I wish it weren't the case. And I wish people would understand that it, my friendship with them has absolutely zero to do with whether they give or don't give. Right. But that's, you know, it's hard to convince people of that sometimes. Or if you have to convince them, usually it's they're not going to understand it or they're not going to want to believe it. But, you know, I mean, I'm sure in, in December you get a lot of unreturned texts and emails like I do, you know, you know? Um, I'll take that laugh of a yes, you know, yeah. um, you know, and it's sure. unfortunate. Right. But, but when I talk to people about it and they say, well, how do you do it? And I say, well, you know what, honestly, like when you believe something is God's work and when you are really passionate about that, this is actually something that is worth asking for. You have no problem sharing that with people. Yeah, but I'll tell you, Phil, on the other side, um, like I've built some incredible relationships around the passion that we share for ministry and with people who who are, are you know, sharing out of what it is that God has trusted to them. And, and we've galvanized relationships around, uh, around that as well. And so, yeah, there are, there are people that sometimes we find ourselves at a bit of a distance from or, or whatever, but the truth is much more has come back in, in like solid relationships and the opportunity to know people and to go more deeply, uh, because of the ministry that God has given us together. Um, you know, so. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, that's actually yeah. true on my side too. And that's, that's actually funny you say that because, um, in our development, actually Paul, who's the producer of the show, he said to me yeah. at one point, he, you know, he goes, I said, well, and the hard part for me is most of these people are, you know, are my friends. And so I don't want to go back to him over and over and over again. And he goes, well, Phil, the problem is you make all of the donors your friend. <laughs> and it's, it's really not a problem, right. but it's right. true. And it's, that goes to your point, right? There's some deep, awesome, amazing relationships that come because, you know, I don't even call them donors. I call them ministry partners or, you know, whatever, you know, I just call them people that are working with us, you know, and, and that's, that's the way it should be, right? You know, so anyway, um, we're going to go into recommendations now. You know, there's so much more we could talk about, but because of time, because it was a, on a longer interview, um, got a couple of recommendations for you guys out there. Now, Rick, you may have seen a couple of these. You may have seen all of them. I don't know. But uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts if you have. So these recommendations are a little unorthodox in the first two. <laughs> One, they're, they're actually videos, uh, you know, I saw on Facebook. Um, and one was the video of the 
the kid that has Down syndrome and he was on the dance show over in England, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Awesome. And, and the yeah. other one about the kid learning about his adoption and the Christmas present. Um, yeah. in those two videos in, you know, the one there for different reasons, man, you know, I don't, I don't watch videos and tear up and, you know, I'm not going to lie. I actually cried on, on one of them. Um, but these ones were so, they, they hit me so hard for, you know, on so many levels, but the, the one, especially the down syndrome kid, I mean, that was so amazing to see so many different things about that, but the mother's love for a child, first of all, mm-hmm. secondly, the, the fact that 90% of these children are killed in utero. Um, once it's found out they have down syndrome, that's in the U S in some countries it's a hundred percent. And you know, that you don't give these children, amazing children with such joy. Um, we take that away from, you know, their life away from them. And then also just seeing how amazing that kid was as a dancer, right? You know, like, like <laughs> to see the gifts and talents of these kids that, you know, every kid has amazing gifts and talents, right? Now, if you put him in a certain social situation, if you put him in a certain class, he might not thrive. And then you say, oh, well, he's, he's just not going to make it. But we don't give these children opportunities, whether Down syndrome or not, right? Like, Every kid has gifts and talents that they're given by God. And to watch that video was so, I don't know. I don't know if you had the same reaction I did, you know, but I, I showed it to my kiddos and, and, you know, just said, guys, this is why I do what I do, you know, be able to give kids the opportunity to develop their gifts and talents. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good stuff, man. So that was, uh, I'm just going to leave it at that. I had something else, but I'll give that to you guys some other, uh, some other episode, but the kid learning about his adoption at Christmas was also um, just a sweet moment to, to see that. And that is the joy, you know, that children have when they realize I have a family, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that's, I know you and I see that, you know, more often than a lot of people do, but it doesn't never gets old. It never, ever gets old. So, um, all right, folks. Well, you know, I, I hope and pray. You know, as I do, as I do with all these uh, episodes, I hope and pray you take what you learned today and you use it to help you to love orphaned and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. And for all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.